right. It is my great privilege this morning to introduce to you a really special person. Um, she's had a lot of encouragement and impact on my life as I've been making a vocational transition the last couple of years, and also on the life and heart of who Current is, undoubtedly more than she knows. Um, Nancy Orberg is the CEO of Transforming the Bay with Christ, which is an organization that was founded in 2013 when a number of Bay Area leaders in business and tech and faith came together to dream dream about what it would be like um, for there to be people of faith that are catalyzing a gospel, holistic gospel movement um, that's really transforming lives and transforming this place that we live in. So under Nancy's really strong leadership um, the last couple of years, they've been making deep inroads um, in forming kingdom unity, um, which is really hard. She was just talking to us a little bit about it. it's hard, it's messy, but so important, um, and amplifying and multiplying churches and gospel uh, here in the Bay Area. Uh, she is uh, a dynamic speaker. Uh, we're so grateful that she's here. Uh, every time we run into her, um, she's a wealth of wisdom, um, lots of heart, um, and always this great balance of encouragement and challenge. Never afraid of real talk, which we love about her. Um, if you've heard us talk about the disproportionate impact of small things, uh, that's her. That's her influence on us. And we're so grateful that she's here to talk to us about faith and work today. So will you join me and give Nancy a really warm Welcome. Well, part of why it's really fun for me to be here this morning is I knew about you before you even knew about yourselves. So a couple of years ago, meeting with um, Cindy and just listening to the vision that the Collisters had for this place and imagining what it would be like, and then, gosh, standing here and seeing your faces is pretty stinking cool. I also hate it when somebody introduces me as a dynamic speaker, because if I was in the audience, I'd be like, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> so please. Um, I'm very excited this morning to talk about faith and work. It's a subject I have honestly been passionate about since I was 14 years old, and here's how I want to start. I want you to have a context in your mind this morning for what I'm going to talk about over the next 30 minutes. So I want you to think right now, what is your current job? What do you get a paycheck for or what do you volunteer for? You might be in your passion job. You're at the pinnacle. You love the work you do. You think this is just what I was made for. You might be in a painful job, which you think is a stepping stone to your next thing. You really hate it. You're dreading going to work tomorrow. We've all been there. You might be retired and in a new season and rhythm, but you are still doing work. You might be in a transition. You may have lost your job. You might be a student. You might be a stay-home mom. Whatever your work is right now, I want you to take one minute and go find one other person here that you don't know and tell them what your work is and ask them what their work is. One minute. Go.
All right, if you can stop talking and go find your seat, we're going to keep going. Part of why I want to do this is I want you to hold in your mind what your job is so that the application and what tomorrow might look at will come to the front. And I also want you to get aware of how many occupations are represented just in this room. There is an unconscious divide in our mind between the sacred and the secular. Unconsciously, we think about people that work on staff at a church or at a nonprofit or are missionaries to foreign countries as doing ministry, and the rest of us have a secular job. And we come to church, and we talk about Jesus, and we sing songs, and it's like a whole other language and a whole other world than what we experience at work. And while there is in us and has been for thousands of years in the Christian faith an unconscious divide, the Bible tells a completely different story. And if I could actually give you a definition of what the gospel is, the gospel is a different story. But the Bible opens up its pages with a contrast to this unconscious secular divide that we have in our minds. In Genesis chapter 1, which is really intended not to be a scientific journal of how the world began, but to be a poetic description of what happened when God decided to create the world. Man, I used to only have to wear these when I was reading up close, and that has changed. Sorry. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, there is this magnificent movement, almost like God is orchestrating and conducting an orchestra. And with the baton, he is separating and then filling, like an orchestra leader who separates the woodwinds from the strings and the brass so they play separately and then at some point brings them in together. This Genesis chapter 1 story is talking about in the beginning there was light and dark and they were separate and Jesus made them night and day and he filled the night with the star and the moons and he filled the day with the sun and the light. And there was water and there was earth and he separated it into the heavens and into land and then he filled the sky with birds and he filled the land with goodness that heaved up the food that we ate. He separates and fills and what we can't miss in this passage is that the very first chapter of the Bible, God has a chance to make a first impression. And you all know what your mother said about first impressions. He has a chance to let humanity know what is the most important thing about him first? And God chooses that moment to say, hi, I'm God, I'm a worker. I work. And in this amazing passage, what God does that is so contrary to all the other pagan lands that were living at the time that this book got written, and this was the purpose of Genesis 1, was to contrast the pagans who said that the gods created people to serve the gods. And our Jehovah God story is a completely different story. It is a story of a God who created out of hospitality first a place that was beautiful and lush and full of good things for us to live in before we had done anything to please God. And so understanding God's view of faith and work and how they are inexorably linked, work came before the fall. It is not a result of the fall or the curse. Work is a gift where we participate every day with God in the creating of value in the world, in our own personal walk with God as we are used by God. And maybe 
for a completely different story to the pagans that lived there, a God who was so good that before we had done anything to earn his love, he gave us this beautiful place to live. There are a number of occupations listed in the Bible, scores of them. So sometimes when Christians will say, you can't get your identity at work, I'm not sure what's happening here, but anything wrong, let me know. Um, that, uh, that while that's true, we don't want our identity to fully be in our work, most people were introduced in Scripture according to their occupation. This is something that we need to take very seriously. Jesus was listed for the first 30 years of his life as the son of a carpenter and a carpenter. That was his identity to a large degree. Dallas Willard, who was the head of the philosophy department at USC, but also a great theologian and a writer and a mentor for my husband and I, says this, your work is your primary place of discipleship. Your work is the primary place where God is going to work in you and through you. I remember one time sitting in Dallas's living room, and I kind of teased him and poked at him, and I said, oh, Dallas, you really mean our families are our primary places of discipleship? He said, no. Actually, it is the nature of work that it will most often take the majority of our time. And then he put it in very simple language. He said, think of a farmer, Nancy. Let's think of somebody who's not successful and driven and ambitious. A farmer. Can a farmer clock out at 5 o'clock because dinner's on the table? If the cows need to be milked and the fence is down, you go and you do your work. So work is our primary place of discipleship. And this discipleship happens for us personally. There are things about God and understanding our identity as a child of God and how he's wired us that we will learn when we offer our work as a place of discipleship. There are ways in which our workplace will change. The organization itself will change when we view our work as a place of discipleship. And there are ways that culture will shift and be shaped differently when those of us who follow Jesus take seriously the fact that our work is our primary place of discipleship. Francis Collins, who headed up the Genome Project for a long time and is now the head of the NIH, said this, that the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome, and he can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. Our work, we collaborate with God, we add value to the world and meaning to the world and to our lives in ways that are aligned with our unique giftedness. So this vision of why we need to not separate faith and work, why we need to integrate them is so crucial to what it means to follow God. And I want to spend my next few minutes talking now about then the how. How do we do that? How do we show up for work as though it is a place of our primary discipleship? I have four points here, and I hate it when preachers have all four points that start with the same letter. I just hate it. Unfortunately, my first three start with a P, and so my fourth one does not, because I don't like it. The first one is preparation. Preparation, and I mean this to be very light touch and simple. I do think, and this is a whole other sermon, I do think when it comes to faith, um, we set the bar way too high. Jesus actually repeatedly set the bar very low. Faith of a mustard seed. Come as a child. 
And so when I think about preparation, before I get to work and on my way home from work, on my way to work, I have a chance to anticipate, to talk to God briefly about what I might find when I'm at work, to ask God to be with me. And then when I go home, I have a chance to debrief it with God and to reflect on what happened. And anticipation and reflection are two of the great things that God uses together to help us to learn who he is and who he wants us to be. I was for many years in another life a registered nurse. And my first year out of college, I worked at a hospital. And you're hooked up with a mentor for three months who's very well educated in being a nurse. And you're brand new and you have a lot of theory in your head, but you really don't know what you're doing. My prayer of preparation was about 30 to 45 seconds on my way to work. Please don't let me kill anybody today. Please don't let me kill anybody today. Please don't let me kill anybody today. Tomorrow's fine. Not today. Anne Lamont says there are only three prayers that matter. Help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And wow. So awesome. But I would, I will sometimes, I, I, um, another thing I hate about speakers is when they say stuff like this, you think they do this all the time every day without fail. No, 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 no. On occasion, I will remember to spend 60 seconds on my way into work getting ready and preparing for work. Who I'm going to meet with, what my posture should be, how can I be present when all I'm thinking about is when 5 o'clock hits and I get to go home and what I'm going to do. And then on the way home, I think about what happened. Where was I short with somebody? Where might I need to apologize tomorrow? Where could I have done better? Where am I so glad I said a quick prayer to God and he helped me with wisdom and a decision that needed to get made? Um, I am looking for my best self all the time. I find her occasionally. I really like her a lot. I wish she'd come around more often. This is the goal of our discipleship at work, is to find our best selves and to live out of that person. I was, for a, a while in my career as a nurse, I worked in the emergency room, and I loved it. I loved the pace. I loved every day that you, you learned something new. And one night in particular, I worked the 3 to 11.30 shift in the emergency room. I had worked three or four shifts in a row. I was tired. It was 11.30, which meant I got to go home, watch David Letterman, and go to bed. That tells you how old I am. And right when the new shift was coming on to get report from the old shift, one of the doctors said to me, Nancy, can you hang back for a minute and admit this young woman that just came in while we take report? No, I'm tired. I want to go home. I'm the only one that's worked four shifts in a row. These other girls and men, why don't you pick them? Now, I've been a Christian long enough to know that you sit on the inside where nobody can see you and not on the outside. So I said, I'd be glad to. But that's not what was happening inside of me. And there's this... Fabulous pat, yeah, because y'all done it, haven't you? Yeah. Because what I often will say when nobody responds, it's like, oh, don't give me that look you're giving me. You know you have all done this. <laughs> Isaiah 29, there's this great passage where God says, my complaint against my people is they honor me with their lips and they praise me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. And I read that sometimes and I think, well, shame on those Israelites. And then the Holy Spirit says, mm, I'm talking to you too and I'm talking to you all the time. So I begrudgingly went in and report on her. I asked her a few questions. I helped her change into a gown. And I walked out thinking, oh, you have the flu. You don't come to the ER when you have the flu. You wait till the morning. You go to your doctor's office. Because it was all about me. I was inconvenienced. I was impatient. I had lost my best self at least a half an hour ago. And then the doctor came back and said, hey, Nance, I'm going to run a few uh, quick blood tests on her. 
Do you mind staying until we get the results back? I'd be glad to. <laughs> Nothing had changed inside. Now, about 20 minutes go by, and this woman was 28, 29 years old. She had two kids and a husband who had already left to go up to Mammoth for vacation a day early. She had to work an extra day, so that's why she was in the hospital. Back in those days, there was a thing called a fax machine that came from the laboratory up to the emergency room. For those of you that don't know what it is, you can do the Google on it. And this paper spits out of a machine and you get the results. And I went over with the doctor to look at the results. And she didn't have the flu. She had fulminating leukemia. She never left the hospital. She went from the emergency room in about four more hours up to the intensive care unit for six weeks and died. I met her husband, I met her children. I can hardly tell you what happened inside me in that moment. I'll tell you in a minute because I reflected on the way home. But what I did is I told the doctor, hey, I'm gonna punch out so the hospital doesn't get charged, but I'll stay with her until her best friend gets her because her husband and children were asleep up in Mammoth. She was in shock. Um, she was terrified. She was numb. And I sat with her. My best self sat with her. Um, that was why I was there. And on the drive home, this conversation with God was something like God saying to me, that's why I have you working in the hospital. I know it's not your dream job. It's not really about you right now, Nancy. I intersected her life with yours because I counted on your best self being present with her. And I wasn't my best self until a few minutes later. And then I felt like God said to me, does it really matter that she had leukemia? Did you have to have an experience that was so dramatic like this to understand she's scared enough to come in the middle of the night with the flu? She needs your presence. And so our preparation for work and finding our best selves and fighting our way back to them is really important. The second thing I think how we show up to work is our persistence, our persistence. Um, Passion is highly overrated, and I say that as a very passionate person. Um, I've been an organizational leader for a long time. I used to do corporate consulting. I'm a visionary leader. I'm here to tell you vision's the easy part. Vision's the easy part. It's the execution and the work that happens after the vision that's the really hard part. Visionary leaders, we get all kinds of praise for what we do. I tell my chairman, it doesn't take very long to come up with a scenario where the world's perfect. It's like... Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> and then, oh, you're a visionary leader. And everybody else on the team, yeah, she's not doing the work. We're doing the work. So this persistence. Um, David and Cindy told you a little bit about the work that I do. Let me just tell you, I started four years ago this month with TBC. My first 18 months, for some of you that have started a new job, maybe you can relate. My first 18 months felt like I was swimming in jello with no goggles. That's what it felt like to me. The scope was huge, it was a complete startup. I had no idea what I was doing. And you know, especially in a startup, it's days and weeks and months and years before you wonder, am I doing the right things because I can't see anything yet. I would do a crossword puzzle every morning at breakfast just so I could see something that actually got done because my work wasn't that way. I woke up every morning with three thoughts towards God. I don't get this, I don't think it's gonna work, I don't think I'm the right person to lead it. I was Mosesing all over God. Just send somebody else. And I got a lesson from God in persistence. 
And lesson feels too harsh. Lesson feels like God is trying to teach me something. God is just simply saying, this is how the universe works. I made the universe. You have to be persistent. This is what it's going to take. And so I relentlessly began to claim persistence as possibly one of the most powerful forces in making our work a primary place of discipleship. I would come home some days and just have to surrender to God. I don't know if what I did today made any difference at all. I don't know if it's going the right direction. But with your help, I'm going to keep on. I read a book by Angela Duckworth during those 18 months called Grit. And it talks about passion and persistence. It's a very data-oriented book. And it says um, persistence trumps passion three to one. So how do I look into Scripture and realize that God has that all through the pages of the Bible, not to give up, not to quit, to keep working? And how do we bring that value to our workplaces as a way that we're living out our faith? The third thing, and maybe the most important, my last P also, is people. People. How do I treat people? How do I build trust with other people in my organization? How do I engage in conflict that's very necessary in order to have great decision-making? But how do I do that that respects people? How do I give people feedback, both positive and negative, in a way that honors them as a human being but doesn't pull back from the truth? How do I enter into their personal life as well and keep track of some of the things that are going on? Uh, Max Dupree who was mentored by Peter Drucker, and Max was one of my mentors for 20 years. He was the CEO of Herman Miller. He was one of the first people to do participative management. Um, he was the first person in the United States to have the HR department called the, the vice president of people. Just a very forward-thinking person, and he writes often in his books on leadership that any CEO in an organization ought to know the name and the story of the janitors that work for them. How do I bridge the gap across the caste system that is in almost every organization, and treat people the way the gospel tells me people are to be treated? What is the different story that the gospel teaches? So another time when I was in the ER, there was one doctor that I loved working with. He happened to be a Christ follower, but he didn't wear that on his sleeve much. We all liked working with him because he was able to bring a disparate group of people in an eight-hour shift together and work as a team to save people. It was remarkable. There's certainly a, a core team in the ER of those of us that work there, but when you do a code on a person, you call in laboratory and respiratory therapy and x-ray, and all of a sudden you have people around the gurney working in a life-and-death situation on somebody, and we don't even know each other's names. And this doctor didn't just do the work, but he orchestrated us like we were a team. When there was a moment of pause where it was safe to do, he might ask one of us, uh, David, what do you think you would do next? Would you put the chest tube in or get the blood gases first, and why? He was teaching all the time, making us feel like we were as important on that team as he was because we did different jobs. He would praise us if there was time. Great job on getting that chest tube in or that catheter in. But he would get the results back and ask us together, if there was time, what should we do? One night in particular, about 10 o'clock at night, he brought in a 24-year-old woman. You remember young ones, and it was three hours of working on her before we knew, are we going to send her to the morgue downstairs or upstairs to ICU? At one point during this code, while he was looking at name tags and using people's names and orchestrating us, there was a pause where it was safe to just breathe, and he looked around at all of us, and he said, 
we are going to save this young girl. I am not going to tell her parents that we did not save her. Am I clear? And we're like, absolutely. I don't know what that means, but sure, I'm on board. When she was stable, a couple of the nurses took her on the gurney with all kinds of tubes and notes up to the ICU. I stayed back to finish up some charting. Back in those days, you still did it by hand. Housekeeping came in to clean, and my doctor that I loved working with was debriefing for about 20 minutes with the intern that was there, going over some of the high-level moves that he made and unpacking it. And I was almost done with my charting, and I heard the doctor that I loved working with ask the intern at the end of the debrief, hey, did you notice the guy from housekeeping that came in? And I remember thinking, I'm done with charting, but I know where this is going, and I wouldn't leave, so I'm just going to keep moving my fingers on the page and eavesdrop like every good nurse always does. <laughs> the intern had a confused look on his face. He looked at the doctor like, all the chest tube and blood gas questions, I understand. Why in the world are you asking me this? And I just thought, oh, dude, you are so in trouble. And then my doctor said, his name is Carlos. And everybody from housekeeping is good, the doctor said, but Carlos stands out. Again, boredom on this guy's face. So my doctor bore down a little bit. He said, you know, Carlos comes in here during a code and cleans up around us so that we're not tripping over stuff. And after a code, puts everything back where it belongs so when the next person comes in, we're ready to go. He serves us so that we can do our jobs better. Again, no response. So then my doctor said this. Carlos's wife's name is Maria. They have four children. He named each of the four children and their ages, and then he said they live in a small apartment about three miles from here in Santa Ana. And I thought, well, dogs, he's been to their house. He has been to their house. He said they came up on a green card a couple years ago, and they send about half their salary every week back down to Mexico. Again, nothing. And so then he put his hand on the intern's shoulder and squeezed, and he said, I see on the uh, schedule that we're going to be working together next Tuesday night. Here's your assignment. Now the guy's ready. You come prepared to tell me something about Carlos that I already know. Have a good night. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> So amazing. And as Christians or people that are speaking about our faith, we're called to treat people like that. Carlos is as important as the doctor. And because the doctor knew that, he told a different story. How do we treat the people that we work with? And sometimes that means going back and apologizing. On the drive home, that conviction that I was really short and cut somebody off, and that was not okay. And then the last thing that helps us show up with this integrated vision of faith and work is our, our rhythms. See, it's an R, P-P-P-R. How do we rest well and work well? Balance is a myth. It's a myth. There are seasons in life where you have to work harder than you want to work in a sustainable way over the whole seasons of your life. That's life. Then there are other seasons where you regain this equilibrium and you, you have this rhythm where it is life-giving. And you need to fight to have rhythms that keep your identity from being fully immersed in your work, but also give you a sense of renewal. Um, there was a study that just came out recently from Duke uh, University and Notre Dame that did a longitudinal study and found the one factor that predicted avoidance of burnout. And it wasn't any of the things you might imagine. It was very simply CEOs all the way down in corporations. Uh, do you have a hobby that you practice on a regular basis, and when you do, you get lost, you lose track of time? Do you understand how theologically profound that is? You lose track of time. 
The world is still spinning on its axis, and you have nothing to do with it. The world is still moving on, and it didn't need you while you were playing. There's a deep theology to rest and rhythm that is as important as our work, and it keeps us fresh and creative and able to prepare, persist, and treat people well because we have margins in our lives. Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, said this, and I love this, out of Genesis chapter 2 and 1. The Sabbath isn't, in the first instance, about worship. It is about work stoppage. It is about withdrawing from the anxiety system of being defined by production and consumption. It is the endless pursuit of well-being with and in God. That's what Sabbath is for. And there are little minutes and an hour or so each day where there has to be these rhythms of rest, and then there's this greater weekly rhythm of Sundays where you come together, but then the rest of the day should be filled with relaxing activities and good food and naps so that you remind yourself, I am the created, I'm not the creator. And imagine what our workplaces would be like if we followed those kinds of rhythms. In Psalms chapter 90, in verse 17, the psalmist says this, Let the favor of the Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The Latin word vocation means to call. It is a calling out of who God made you to be, to show up for the work God needs done in the world with a posture that treats people as the equal human beings they are, for the good of culture, for the good of the organization, and for the good of your own discipleship and walk with God. Let me recommend two books before I go. The first is Visions of Vocation by Stephen Garber. Visions of Vocation. It's phenomenal. And then Managing Leadership Anxiety by Stephen Cuss. Uh, they're both fabulous resources for being the kind of leaders we need to be at work. Let's pray. Father, we offer our work up to you, and whether that starts today or tomorrow, whether it's our ultimate passion dream job or not, would you remind us in some small way as we go to and from work tomorrow to prepare ourselves and to learn? Would you teach us to be persistent when it's hard because it will always be hard? And we learn so much about who you are and your goodness when life is difficult? And would you most of all remind us that the people around us in our workplace are worthy of and in need of a different story, that people honor them and respect them, that people give them hard feedback but don't move away from them and still engage and care about them. And may we look at the work you've called us to do as a vehicle by which this world can become a little bit more like the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, amen.